Welcome to Avocado Knits. It's spring! Sort of. Off and on. And spring does crazy things to people. Even Chaucer thinks so. Juan that April with his showers sota, the drocht of March hath pierced to the rota, and bathed every vein in switch liqueur, of which vertu engendred is the floor, when Zephyrus ache with his sweet breath, inspired hath in every holt and haith the tender croppes, and the youngest son hath in the ram his halfe course run, and smalle fowles maken melodie, that sleepen all the nicht with open eye, so pricketh him nature in her courages, than longen folk to go non pilgrimages. And palmers for to seken strange strandes, to ferne halves, couth in sondre landes, and specially from every shears ende of England to Canterbury they wende, the holy blissful martyr for to seke, that hem hath holpen, when that they were seke. End of poem. This recording is in the public domain. Prologue to the Canterbury Tales, lines 1 to 18 by Geoffrey Chaucer. Read for LibriVox.org by Kara Schallenberg. Well, for those of you who don't speak Middle English, a rough translation would be When that April with his showers sweet, and the drought of March hath pierced to the root, and bathed every vein in sweet liqueur, of which virtue engendered is the flower, when Zephyrus, each with his sweet breath, inspired hath in every hold and heath, tender crops, and the young sun hath in the ram his half-course run, and that small fowls make melody that sleep all the night with open eye. So pricketh them nature in their hearts. Then long folk to go on pilgrimages, and pilgrims for to seek strange strands to far holy places known in sundry lands and specially from every shire's end of England to Canterbury they wend, the holy blissful martyr for to seek, that them had helped when that they were sick. Well, as Chaucer knows, or knew, it's a convention in English to always speak of the author as if she or he were still alive. As Chaucer knew, <laughs> spring can make you do crazy things like picking up and going on a huge trip just to celebrate that you feel well again after that long cold winter. Well, my pilgrimage this year is just trying to make our garden better. We have a container garden that we keep out on the back deck, two stories above ground. It's the only place we can keep it because we live in a condominium association that does not look kindly on digging up the lawn. And this year our adventure is setting up a drip irrigation system. It's going to be very tricky because we don't actually have any running water to hook the drip irrigation system up to. So we're going to be improvising with a water barrel that will fill up occasionally from the spigot inside the garage. Yeah, the condo association doesn't make it easy. But I plan to tell you all about my adventures and misadventures with the garden in future podcasts. This one is just about spring. Crazy things it makes other people do. Got poetry and I think a story or two and some music to celebrate that spring that pricks us in our hearts 
and makes us happy to be alive. Roses by Spring Hill Jack's original swinging jazz band. Glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple color as a brinded cow, for rose moles all in stipple upon trout that swim, fresh firecoal chestnut falls, finches' wings, landscape plotted and pieced, fold, fallow, and plow. And all trades, their gear and tackle and trim. All things counter, original, spare, strange. Whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how. 
with swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzle, dim. He fathers forth whose beauty is past change. Praise him. Pied Beauty by Gerard Manley Hopkins. was Grow a Garden by Kissang Marstrand. 
Now that the winter is gone, The earth hath lost her snow white robes, And now no more the frost candies the grass, Or casts an icy cream Upon the silver lake or crystal stream; But the warm sun thaws the benumbed earth, And makes it tender, Gives a sacred birth to the dead swallow, Wakes in hollow tree the drowsy cuckoo and the humble bee. Now do a choir of chirping minstrels bring In triumph to the world the youthful spring, The valleys, hills, and woods in rich array Welcome the coming of the longed-for May. Now all things smile, only my love doth lower, nor hath the scalding noonday sun the power to melt that marble ice which still doth hold her heart congealed and makes her pity cold. The ox which lately did for shelter fly into the stall doth now securely lie in open fields, and love no more is made by the fireside, but in the cooler shade Amintas now doth with his chloris sleep under a sycamore, and all things keep time with the season. Only she doth carry June in her eyes, in her heart January. The Spring by Thomas Carew Best hour that I ever spent Sitting on the porch in the sun in the south Drinking lemonade and dreaming about the shade Was in love all the way with you And the flowers you gave to me
that was Flowers by Gold Box Kingdom, featuring Amy B. Unfortunately, not everything that happens in a garden is positive. Those of us who do garden know about all of the pests and problems, the diseases that can afflict the plants that we care for. But we should be thinking about more than just the plants. I mean, there are others who may suffer because of our selfish inclination to decorate without thought. As the Garden Gnome Liberation Movement has pointed out, it is time to stop oppressive gardening. And if you yourself are not one of the culprits of this terrible thoughtless crime, but one of your neighbors is, there is something you can do about it. Visit freethenomes.com for support, advice, and a handy form letter to send to the offending neighbor, such as this one. No slave owner. We deplore your treatment of gentle woodland creatures and your total disregard for the basic principles of liberty. Your moral bankruptcy is evidenced by your acts of wanton recklessness and the deliberate use of coercive force and terror tactics against gentle and innocent creatures. It has come to our attention that a gnome is being held captive in your garden. We do not, as a rule, negotiate with terrorists. However, we request that he be released immediately. Already your actions have prompted copycat offenses, which we have witnessed, including the deplorable use of a gnome as a hood ornament. We understand that you probably were not responsible for the innocent gnome's original capture, but rather purchased him from a gnome slave trafficker like a garden center or craft show. Please understand that we are not holding you responsible for the state of gnome slavery in America. We are, however, asking you to put an end to your involvement. Do the responsible thing. Free your gnome today. FREETHGNOMES.COM has specially trained caseworkers who will gladly work with you toward the goal of returning your gnome to the northern woodlands from where he came. Please contact us today at freely at freethenomes.com. Although American law currently permits you to keep a gnome in slavery, we believe it to be morally reprehensible. We hope that upon honest reflection, you will agree. Stop oppressive gardening. Free the nose.
That was Bees and Flowers, also known as Joe Smallwood's Reel, by Duane Andrews. Charles Dudley Warner, My Summer in a Garden. Second week. Next to deciding when to start your garden, the most important matter is what to put in it. It is difficult to decide what to order for dinner on a given day. How much more oppressive is it to order in a lump an endless vista of dinners, so to speak? For unless your garden is a boundless prairie, and mine seems to me to be that when I hoe it on the hot days, you must make a selection from the great variety of vegetables of those you will raise in it. And you feel rather bound to supply your own table from your own garden and to eat only as you have sown. I hold that no man has a right whatever his sex, of course, to have a garden to his own selfish uses. He ought not to please himself, but every man to please his neighbor. I tried to have a garden that would give general moral satisfaction. It seemed to me that nobody could object to potatoes, a mostly useful vegetable, and I began to plant them freely. But there was a chorus of protest against them. You don't want to take up your ground with potatoes, the neighbors said. You can buy potatoes. The very thing I wanted to avoid doing is buying things. What you want is the perishable things that you cannot get fresh in the market. But what kind of perishable things? A horticulturalist of eminence wanted me to sow lines of strawberries and raspberries right over where I had put my potatoes in drills. I had about 500 strawberry plants in another part of my garden, but this fruit fanatic wanted me to turn my whole patch into vines and runners. Suppose I could raise strawberries enough for all my neighbors, and perhaps I ought to do it. I had a little space prepared for melons, musk melons, which I showed to an experienced friend. You're not going to waste your ground on musk melons, he asked. They rarely ripen in this climate thoroughly before frost. He had tried for years without luck. I resolved not to go into such a foolish experiment. But the next day another neighbor happened in. Ah, I see you're going to have melons. My family would rather give up anything else in the garden than muskmelons of the nutmeg variety. They are the most graceful things we have on the table. Well, so there it was. There was no compromise. It was melons or no melons, and somebody offended in any case. I have resolved to plant them a little late so that they would and they wouldn't. But I had the same difficulty about string beans, which I detest, and squash, which I tolerate, and parsnips, and the whole round of green things. I've pretty much come to the conclusion that you've got to put your foot down in gardening. If I had actually taken counsel of my friends, I should not have had a thing growing in the garden today but weeds. And besides, while you're waiting, nature does not wait. Her mind is made up. She knows just what she will raise, and she has an infinite variety of early and late. The most humiliating thing to me about a garden is the lesson it teaches of the inferiority of man. Nature is prompt, decided, inexhaustible. She thrusts up her plants with a vigor and freedom that I admire, and the more worthless the plants, the more rapid and splendid its growth. She is at it early and late and all night, never tiring or showing the least sign of exhaustion. Eternal gardening is the price of liberty, is a motto that I should put over the gateway of my garden if I had a gate. And yet it is not wholly true, for is, there is no liberty in gardening. The man who undertakes a garden is relentlessly pursued. He felicitates himself that when he gets it plant, once planted, he will have a season of rest 
and of enjoyment in the sprouting and growing of his seeds. It is a keen anticipation. He has planted a seed that will keep him awake nights, drive rest from his bones, and sleep from his pillow. Hardly is the garden planted when he must begin to hoe it. The weeds have sprung up all over it in a night. They shine and wave in redundant life. The docks have almost gone to seed, and their roots go deeper than conscience. Talk about the London docks. The roots of these are like the sources of the Aryan race. And the weeds are not all. I wake in the morning, and a thriving garden will wake a person up two hours before he ought to be out of bed. And think of the tomato plants, the leaves like fine lace work, owing to black bugs that skip around and can't be caught. Somebody ought to get up before the dew is off. Why don't the dew stay on until after a reasonable breakfast and sprinkle soot on the leaves? I wonder if it is I. Soot is so much blacker than the bugs that they are disgusted and go away. You can't get up too early if you have a garden. You must be early dew yourself if you get ahead of the bugs. I think that, on the whole, it would be best to sit up all night and sleep daytimes. Things appear to go on in the night in the garden uncommonly. It would be less trouble to stay up than it is to get up so early. I've been setting out some new raspberries, two sorts, a silver and a gold color. How fine they will look on the table next year in a cut glass dish, the cream being in a ditto pitcher. I set them four and five feet apart. I set my strawberries pretty well apart also. The reason is to give room for the cows to run through when they break into the garden, as they do sometimes. A cow needs a broader track than a locomotive, and she generally makes one. I am sometimes astonished to see how big a space in a flower bed her foot will cover. The raspberries are called Doolittle and Golden Cap. I don't like the name of the first variety, and if they do much, shall change it to Silver Top. You can never tell what a thing named Doolittle will do. The one in the Senate changed color and got sour. They ripen badly, either mildew or rot on the bush. They are apt to Johnsonize, rot on the stem. I shall watch the Doolittles. Fourth week. Orthodoxy is at a low ebb. Only two clergymen accepted my offer to come and help hoe my potatoes for the privilege of using my vegetable total depravity figure about the snake grass or quack grass, as some call it. And those two did not bring hoes. There seems to be a lack of disposition to hoe among our educated clergy. I am bound to say that these two, however, sat and watched my vigorous combats with the weeds and talked most beautifully about the application of the snake grass figure. As, for instance, when a fault or sin showed on the surface of a man, whether, if you dug down, you would find that it ran back and into the original organic bunch of original sin within the man. The only other clergyman who came was from out of town, a half-universalist who said he wouldn't give twenty cents for my figure. He said that the snake grass was not in my garden originally, and that it sneaked in under the sod, and that it could be entirely rooted out with industry and patience. I asked the universalist-inclined man to take my hoe and try it, but he said he hadn't time and went away. But, Jubilate, I have got my garden all hoed the first time. I feel as if I had put down the rebellion. Only there are gorillas left here and there, about the borders and in corners, unsubdued, forest docks and quantrill grass and Beauregard pigweeds. This first hoeing is a gigantic task. 
It is your first trial of strength with the never-sleeping forces of nature. Several times in its progress I was tempted to do as Adam did, who abandoned his garden on account of the weeds. How much my mind seems to run upon Adam, as if there had been only two really moral gardens, Adam's and mine. The only drawback to my rejoicing over the finishing of a first hoeing is that the garden now wants hoeing a second time. I suppose if my garden were planted in a perfect circle and I started round it with a hoe, I should never see any opportunity to rest. The fact is that gardening is the old fable of perpetual labor. And I, for one, can never forgive Adam Sisyphus, or whoever it was, who let in the roots of discord. I had pictured myself sitting at eve with my family in the shade of twilight, contemplating a garden hoed. Alas, it is a dream not to be realized in this world. My mind has been turned to the subject of fruit and shade trees in a garden. There are those who say that trees shade the garden too much and interfere with the growth of the vegetables. There may be something in this, but when I go down the potato rows, the rays of the sun glancing upon my shining blade, the sweat pouring from my face, I should be grateful for shade. What is a garden for? The pleasure of man. I should take much more pleasure in a shady garden. Am I to be sacrificed, broiled, roasted, for the sake of the increased vigor of a few vegetables? The thing is perfectly absurd. If I were rich, I think I would have my garden covered with an awning so that it would be comfortable to work in it. It might roll up and be removable as the great awning of the Roman Colosseum was, not like the Boston one which went off in a high wind. Another very good way to do, and probably not so expensive as the awning, would be to have four persons of foreign birth carry a sort of canopy over you as you hoed, and there might be a person at each end of the row with some cool and refreshing drink. Agriculture is still in a very barbarous stage. I hope to live yet to see the day when I can do my gardening as tragedy is done, to slow and soothing music, and attended by some of the comforts I've named. These things come so forcibly into my mind sometimes as I work, that perhaps when a wandering breeze lifts my straw hat, or a bird lights on a near current bush and shakes out a full-throated summer song, I almost expect to find the cooling drink and the hospitable entertainment at the end of the row. But I never do. There is nothing to be done but turn around and hoe back to the other end. Speaking of those yellow squash bugs, I think I disheartened them by covering the plants so deep with soot and wood ashes that they could not find them, and I am in doubt if I shall ever see the plants again. But I have heard of another defense against the bugs. Put a fine wire screen over each hill, which will keep out the bugs and admit the rain. I should say that these screens will not cost much more than the melons you would likely get from the vines if you bought them. But then think of the moral satisfaction of watching the bugs hovering over the screen, seeing but unable to reach the tender plants within. That is worth paying for. I left my own garden yesterday and went over to where Polly was getting the weeds out of one of her flower beds. She was working away at the bed with a little hoe. Whether women ought to have the ballot or not, and I have a decided opinion on that point which I should here plainly give to not fear that it would injure my agricultural influence, I am compelled to say that this was rather helpless hoeing. It was patient, conscientious, even pathetic hoeing, but it was neither effective nor finished. 
When completed, the bed looked somewhat as if a hen had scratched it. There was that touching unevenness about it. I think no one could look at it and not be affected. To be sure, Polly smoothed it off with a rake and asked me if it wasn't nice. And I said it was. It was not a favorable time for me to explain the difference between puttering hoeing and the broad, free sweep of the instrument which kills the weeds, spares the plants, and loosens the soil without leaving it in holes and hills. But, after all, as life is constituted, I think more of Polly's honest and anxious care of her plants than of the most finished gardening in the world. Sixth week. Somebody has sent me a new sort of hoe, with the wish that I should speak favorably of it, if I can, consistently. I willingly do so, but with the understanding that I am to be at liberty to speak just as courteously of any other hoe which I may receive. If I understand religious morals, this is the position of the religious press with regard to bitters and ringing machines. In some cases, the responsibility of such a recommendation is shifted upon the wife of the editor or clergyman. Polly says she is entirely willing to make a certificate accompanied with an affidavit with regard to this hoe, but her habit of sitting about the garden walk with, on an inverted flower pot while I hoe somewhat destroys the practical value of her testimony. As to this hoe, I do not mind saying that it has changed my view of the desirableness and value of human life. It has, in fact, made life a holiday to me. It is made on the principle that man is an upright, sensible, and reasonable being, and not a groveling wretch. It does away with the necessity of the hinge in the back. The handle is seven and a half feet long. There are two narrow blades, sharp on both edges, which come together at an obtuse angle in front. And as you walk along with this hoe before you, pushing and pulling with a gentle motion, the weeds fall at every thrust and withdrawal, and the slaughter is immediate and widespread. When I got this hoe, I was troubled with sleepless mornings, pains in the back, kleptomania with regard to new weeders. When I went into my garden, I was always sure to see something. In this disordered state of mind and body, I got this hoe. The morning after a day of using it, I slept perfectly and late. I regained my respect for the Eighth Commandment. After two doses of the hoe in the garden, the weeds had entirely disappeared. Trying it a third morning, I was obliged to throw it over the fence in order to save from destruction the green things that ought to grow in the garden. Of course, this is figurative language. What I mean is that the fascination of using this hoe is such that you are sorely tempted to employ it upon your vegetables after the weeds are laid low and must hastily withdraw it to avoid unpleasant results. I make this explanation because I intend to put nothing into these agricultural papers that will not bear the strictest scientific investigation. Nothing that the youngest child cannot understand and cry for. Nothing that the oldest and wisest men will not need to study with care. I need not add that the care of a garden with this hoe becomes the merest pastime. I would not be without one for a single night. The only danger is that you may rather make an idol of the hoe and somewhat neglect your garden in explaining it and fooling about with it. I almost think that with one of these in the hands of an ordinary day laborer, you might see at night where he'd been working. Let us have peas. I have been a zealous advocate of the birds. I have rejoiced in their multiplication. 
I've endured their concerts at four o'clock in the morning without a murmur. Let them come, I said, and eat the worms, in order that we later may enjoy the foliage and other fruits of the earth. We have a cat, a magnificent animal of the sex which votes, but not a polecat, so large and powerful that if he were in the army he would be called Long Tom. He is a cat of fine disposition, the most irreproachable morals I ever saw thrown away in a cat, and a splendid hunter. He spends his nights not in social dissipation, but in gathering in rats, mice, flying squirrels, and also birds. When he first brought me a bird, I told him that it was wrong, and tried to convince him, while he was eating it, that he was doing wrong. For he is a reasonable cat, and understands pretty much everything except the binomial theorem and time down the cycloidal arc. But with no effect. The killing of birds went on to my great regret and shame. The other day I went to my garden to get a mess of peas. I had seen the day before that they were just ready to pick. How I had lined the ground, planted, hoed, and bushed them. The bushes were very fine, seven feet high and of good wood. How I had delighted in the growing, the blowing, the potting. What a touching thought it was that they had all potted for me. When I went to pick them, I found the pods all split open and the peas gone. The dear little birds, who are so fond of the strawberries, had eaten them all. Perhaps there were left as many as I planted. I did not count them. I made a rapid estimate of the cost of the seed, the interest of the ground, the price of the labor, the value of the bushes, and the anxiety of weeks of watchfulness. I looked about me on the face of nature. The wind blew from the south, so soft and treacherous. A thrush sang in the woods so deceitfully. All nature seemed fair. But who was to give me back my peas? The fowls of the air have peas. But what has man? I went into the house. I called Calvin. That's the name of our cat, given him on account of his gravity, morality, and uprightness. We never familiarly call him John. I petted Calvin. I lavished upon him an enthusiastic fondness. I told him that he had no fault, that the one action that I had called a vice was an heroic exhibition of regard for my interest. I bade him go and do likewise continually. I now saw how much better instinct is than mere unguided reason. Calvin knew. If he had put his opinion into English instead of his native catalogue, it would have been, you need not teach your grandmother to suck eggs. It was only the round of nature. The worms eat a noxious something in the ground. The birds eat the worms. Calvin eats the birds. We eat no, we do not eat Calvin. There the chain stops when you ascend the scale of being and come to an animal that is, like ourselves, inedible. You have arrived at a result where you can rest. Let us respect the cat. He completes an edible chain. I have a little heart to discuss methods of raising peas. It occurs to me that I can have an iron pea bush, a sort of trellis, 
through which I could discharge electricity at frequent intervals and electrify the birds to death when they alight. For they stand upon my beautiful bush in order to pick out the peas. An apparatus of this kind, without an operator, would cost, however, about as much as the peas. A neighbor suggests that I might put up a scarecrow near the vines, which would keep the birds away. I am doubtful about it. The birds are too much accustomed to seeing a person in poor clothes in the garden to care much for that. Another neighbor suggests that the birds do not open the pods. The sort of blast apt to come after rain splits the pods and the birds then eat the peas. It may be so. There seems to be a complete unity of action between the blast and the birds. But good neighbors, kind friends, I desire that you will not increase by talk a disappointment which you cannot assuage. <laughs>
that was Flower by Superlux. The Garden Hose by Edgar Wilson Nye. It is now the proper time for the cross-eyed woman to fool with the garden hose. I have faced death in almost every form, and I do not know what fear is. But when a woman with one eye gazing into the zodiac and the other peering into the middle of next week and wearing one of those floppy sunbonnets picks up the nozzle of the garden hose and turns on the full force of the institution, I fly wildly to the mountains of Hepsidam. Water won't hurt anyone, of course, if care is used not to forget and drink any of it, but it is this horrible suspense and uncertainty about facing the nozzle of a garden hose in the hands of a cross-eyed woman that unnerves and paralyzes me. Instantaneous death is nothing to me. I am as cool and collected where leaden rain and iron hail are thickest as I would be in my own office, writing the obituary of the man who steals my jokes. But I hate to be drowned slowly in my good clothes and on dry land and have my dying gaze rest on a woman whose ravishing beauty would drive a narrow-gauge mule into convulsions and make him hate himself to death. You may recognize that as the Farmyard Rock and Roll number from Episode 6 by the Jackass Penguin Show. The sun was shining inside the four walls, and the high arch of blue sky over this particular piece of Misselthwaite seemed even more brilliant and soft than it was over the moor. The robin flew down from his treetop, and hopped about, or flew after her from one bush to another. He chirped a good deal, and had a very busy air, as if he were showing her things. Everything was strange and silent, and she seemed to be hundreds of miles away from anyone. But somehow she did not feel lonely at all. All that troubled her was her wish that she knew whether all the roses were dead, or if perhaps some of them had lived and might put out leaves and buds as the weather got warmer. She did not want it to be a quite dead garden. If it were a quite alive garden, how wonderful it would be, and what thousands of roses would grow on every side. Her skipping rope had hung over her arm when she came in, and after she had walked about for a while, she thought she would skip round the whole garden, stopping when she wanted to look at things. There seemed to have been grass paths here and there, and in one or two corners there were alcoves of evergreen with stone seats or tall moss-covered flower urns in them. 
As she came near the second of these alcoves, she stopped skipping. There had once been a flower bed in it, and she thought she saw something sticking out of the black earth, some sharp little pale green points. She remembered what Ben Weatherstaff had said, and she knelt down to look at them. Yes, they are tiny growing things, and they might be crocuses or snowdrops or daffodils, she whispered. She went very close to them and sniffed the fresh scent of the damp earth. She liked it very much. Perhaps there are some other ones coming up in other places, she said. I will go all over the garden and look. She did not skip, but walked. She went slowly and kept her eyes on the ground. She looked in the old border beds and among the grass, and after she had gone round trying to miss nothing, she had found ever so many more sharp pale green points, and she had become quite excited again. It isn't a quite dead garden, she cried out softly to herself. Even if the roses are dead, there are other things alive. She did not know anything about gardening, but the grass seemed so thick in some of the places where the green points were pushing their way through that she thought they did not seem to have enough room to grow. She searched about until she found a rather sharp piece of wood and knelt down and dug and weeded out the weeds and grass until she made nice clear places around them. Now they look as if they could breathe, she said. The Secret Garden by Frances Hodgson Burnett Don't be fooled by the shadows of trees Songbirds are sleeping among the green leaves And even in the moonlight Even in the deep night It's all, all Sleep now softly Close your eyes The day will greet you When from peaceful slumbers you rise
When from peaceful slumbers you rise Sleeping among the green leaves, and even in the moonlight, even in the deep night, it's all alright. It's all. was Among the Green Leaves by Kisang Marstrand. Well, the end of the podcast has come, but spring is just beginning. Get out there and enjoy it. All the music in this podcast was provided by mevio.com.